can be seated. Open your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going to look at chapter 11 and 12 this morning. As you're turning there, let me just share with you, I'm so excited what's coming the first weekend in November in the life of our church. Starting on November the 5th, we have our church's missions festival. The theme for this missions festival is going to be refresh. Is some of the things we've normally been able to do, we're praying and looking forward to revisiting and redoing. And I'm looking forward to that. It's a great time. It's my favorite weekend in the life of our church. I want to encourage you, go ahead now. Mark your calendars for November the 5th. Kathy Daniel is one of our missionaries. Is going to be sharing with us that night at a banquet. There's going to be great food, tremendous fellowship. And then Saturday is going to be a great day for breakout sessions. And Sunday morning, Joseph Velarde, a church planner from Pennsylvania, is going to be preaching for us. It's going to be a great weekend. And in coordination with that week, we're taking a special offering to honor the ministry that Kathy's doing in West Africa. And all that we're giving toward this special offering is going to go to help her share the gospel with people there. And I'm looking forward to presenting her that offering the weekend of our missions festival. So you can go ahead and be praying about that. You can find a place to give by visiting our website and going down the scroll down menu to West African Missions. And I encourage you to think about that. But I cannot wait for that weekend. Put it on your calendar. It's going to be tremendous and such an important weekend in the life of our church. Well, Nehemiah chapter 11, we're going to look at two chapters this morning. Read with me in chapter 11, just the opening two verses. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. This past weekend, my daughters, we had a really good time together, but Friday night we had a sleepover as Paige brought her friend Charlotte over to our house, and Charlotte was just delightful. She had just a sweet little girl. Um, I'm thankful for Charlotte. She's a fellow Auburn fan, which is always a good thing and more than welcome to my home. In our church, I have about four of you who join me in that. But, but I tell you, I love having Charlotte in our house. And Friday night, Charlotte, who was just filled with joy and she was a delight, super respectful, she got me really excited when we were sitting around the table and we started to eat um, Paige requested lasagna, my favorite meal. Allie served it that night, and, and it was really exciting. We sat around the table. Charlotte was there, and she began to use language of great exclamation that, that I tell you I got really excited about because she started in with my wife, and she explained to my wife, and this isn't going to surprise you, she said, you are radical, <laughs> And if you know Allie, you know that she is pretty rad. I mean, that's just who Allie is. And that doesn't come as a surprise to you. But when I heard that, I was starting to get excited. What is she going to say about me? If Allie gets radical, surely I'm going to get something great. Well, then she went over to Paige, and she said to Paige, you are tubular. And Paige was like, well, of course I am. And so, so she called Allie radical, called Paige tubular. And then it was my turn, and she kind of looked at me, and she said, well, you're all right. And, and I was like, well, that's kind of what I would expect. I tell you, when I think about what Charlotte did around the table today, it reminded me of a book that I read several years ago by Michael Horton, and the book is entitled Ordinary. 
And he opens that book talking about how in our way that we communicate today, we use different language than we used to use. Every text message, every communication has to be followed with an exclamation point because we want to capture people's excitement and look excited ourselves in how we talk. So everything is an exclamation point in our culture. And he begins to then give this needed voice to say that there are things in life that we need to understand that God's calling us to that are ordinary, but man, they are so important. Maybe you followed along, but one of the books that has been vitally important to me in my pilgrimage has been a book by David Platt by the name that Allie so got from Charlotte, a book called Radical, which has been so helpful for me in thinking how to bring me out of a place of complacency and truly honor the Lord in all that I do and all that I say in an in a expression of faithfulness to God, trusting Him in the hard places. And Radical's been an important book to me, but I'm so thankful for Michael Horton's book because in talking about ordinary, he makes mention of the fact that there are certain areas in our life that might appear ordinary, but boy, they are so critically important. And so he talks about language, as I shared. He gives a few other satirical comments along the way. My favorite thing that he writes about in the opening chapter to set up his argument is how he writes of the experience of a, of a girl named Tish Harrison Warren. And Tish Harrison Warren is one who came up in this culture looking for the radical. And this is what she said while she admits that this has helped her come out of her complacency. It, kept, it keeps her from living a life of, un, of, of comfort. But this is what she writes. Now she says, I'm a 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. And what I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. Later in the book, Horton quotes from Tish Harrison Warren yet again as she, in another part of the book, is reflecting on a challenge that one of her closest friends experienced who wanted to live a radical life, loved Jesus with all of his heart, and really felt led to go to one of the most at-risk schools in America and teach in that really hard place. And it led her friend to experience a nervous breakdown. And while she was reflecting upon the challenge that her friend faced and what might have been missing in his preparation, this is what she concludes. We were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person living an average life in a beautiful way. Now, it might be true that Tish Harrison Warren never learned the beauty of how to live in a normal life before the Lord. But as we open up our Bible to Nehemiah 11 and 12, I'm thankful that this is a lesson that Nehemiah understood with great vigilance. If you think about where he came from when we are first introduced him in Nehemiah 1, he is in the courtroom of King Artaxerxes, the most 
formidable king of the world of that day. And he is living in a palace of opulence that is unlike any other place in the world at the time of which he is living. And if you want to be a part of an exciting place, then you need to be a part of the Persian Empire because that's where everything in life was happening. It was an empire that was bustling with people. It was bustling with excitement. And that is where you would want to go if you wanted to, to live out your days in a place that got lots of, 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 of attention and lots of crowds. Man, that was just the place to be. And that's where Nehemiah started. But then when he learned of the concern of the people back in Jerusalem, he left that place of opulence and excitement to go to a warm, torn city of Jerusalem that didn't even have any walls. And a place where there were houses that no one was occupying that was more like a ghost town than anywhere else. And this is where God called him to then serve, not just for a short term, like on a mission trip, this is where he was called to go and to invest and make his life work. And so that's where we find Nehemiah when we come to this chapter. And if Nehemiah lived his life much like what I think sometimes we look for, only spending our time in the radical, only wanting to do the things that might be worthy of a Pinterest page to encourage and to, and to, to impress other people, if that's the way that Nehemiah lived, I would submit to you, we wouldn't even have been given this incredible book. Because he lived his life much differently. He wasn't going to let his life be distracted by the shiny object that kept him away from God's word. Instead, he knew what it was to follow the voice of God in his life. And he humbly went to this place that God had called him to serve. So this morning... As we think about how Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem to be used by the Lord to rebuild the people, I want us to understand that there's so much for us to learn from these pages too. Nehemiah 11 and 12, we're going to look at them together. There's a whole lot of listed names in the book, and a lot of the names don't even have any context. When I even just see about the way that these chapters lay out, this is so similar to the way that we need to live. As we see a bunch of names, a part of a body, life of a group of people living in Jerusalem, but we're not given anything other than a name, as they are all enlisted in this important body life of Jerusalem, and so it should be for us. We're not looking for a claim, special attendance, but we know that God, uh, we know that God is calling us to a significant work, and he wants us to do all of this together. So in chapter 11, it all begins with Nehemiah talking about these from the tribe of Judah, and then the tribe of Benjamin. And then we're going to look at the Levites that were mentioned, and along with them, the high priests. And even when you look at these groups of, of tribes of, of, of the people of God, why in the world does it start with Judah? Well, of course, it's because it's centered on Jerusalem. And believe it or not, it's incredibly important. We just got done singing that Jesus is the Lion of Judah that Jesus comes from Judah. And then when it talks about Benjamin, it's almost a reclamation of one of the smallest of all the tribes, the tribe from which King Saul came from. That's a tribe that needs some reclaiming. And then we're going to look at the role of the high priest and those who do the work of the temple. And those are the main ones mentioned in these three chapters together. And we're going to look at that 
And as we do so, we're going to see a lot of people mentioned in this text. Everyone from the high priest and scribe Ezra to the great governor of Jerusalem, Nehemiah, who wrote the book himself. We're going to see Israel's farmers mentioned. We're going to see their nobility, their leaders. And what we're going to see as we read these chapters is of all these people that are mentioned, they're all located in the right places, giving us a lesson to learn as we live our lives before the Lord, wanting to be faithful to King Jesus. And here's the lesson of these two chapters this morning. Fully devoted followers of Jesus serve Christ in the places and the purposes of his choosing. That's ultimately how we're called to live and how God wants us to live before him. So chapter 11 begins in a real interesting way. I've already read it, so I won't read it again. But it begins by talking about how God's people are casting lots. And I feel like as even as we start this, I need to explain what this is because this isn't a form of acceptable, um, acceptable gambling. Is a casting of lots was a common practice in the Old Testament, and we read of it all the way through in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples cast lots to know the will of the Lord in replacing that disciple that, was, that, that lost his life in his betrayal of Jesus and Judas. So whenever you read about casting lots in the Bible, it's kind of an intentional place. And what it reminds us too of is that in the Old Testament through Acts chapter 1, it was this period in the life of the people of God that they did not have the fullness of the Spirit to give them the discernment of God's will like we have today. So they trusted the Lord in his sovereign plan as they would cast lots, trusting that God would let those lots tell what his revealed will was. And in Nehemiah chapter 11, it's a fair way to determine who is going to leave their lives of comfort out in the countryside, in the nice farms that they had grown and which they had learned to enjoy, Who's going to leave those places and then come back into the now restored city of Jerusalem and repopulate it the way that God wanted it to be reclaimed? And so that's what they're doing is they're casting lots. And the Bible says that of these who cast lots, that one out of ten of them made their way back into the holy city. And I want you to notice in verse 2. Now, we don't know as we interpret it if this is a separate group of those who did not choose to enter their name into the casting of lots. They just volunteered to go into Jerusalem. Some interpret it that way. Others just say that these are those who have spoken of earlier. They voluntarily accepted what was determined through the casting of lots. But either way, I really want you to focus on verse 2. The response of everyone in Jerusalem to these who are moving back into the city, it says that the people blessed all of them who were willing to offer their lives and follow the Lord. And as you read verse 2, this is a tremendous example for us. We need to do as the people of God did back in Nehemiah's day and bless others. We need to encourage others because faithfulness to God always requires courage. You're going to see that as we continue in Nehemiah chapter 11. If you get into the details of these lists, you're going to see in verse 6 the mention of the sons of Perez as the tribe of Judah is mentioned. And as we think about the sons of Perez, the Bible says of all 468 of them, all 468 are described in this text as being valiant men. And then you read about the sons of Benjamin. As that comes in the next section, 
And of the sons of Benjamin, if you look in verse 8, all 928 of these are described as men of valor. And then you look at the description of the priests, not just the ruler of the house of God, the high priest himself, but also the, high, the priestly men who did the work of the Lord's house. Of all of them and of all of their brothers, they are described in verse 14 as being mighty men of valor. In church, there's a picture of this that we need to learn. If we are going to be the church that steps into the ruin of our world, coming out of a pandemic and be revitalized to be faithful to the Lord, just as Nehemiah rebuilt the people in his day, that we need to be rebuilt in our day. It requires us to be as these men and women. We must be valiant. We must be courageous. We have to understand what God's Word says and live out the Scriptures. We've got to do whatever is required by what God's Word teaches and listen to me, lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. This is what's going to be necessary if we are going to penetrate the lostness of Smyrna. We must be men and women of valor. So we have to follow hard after Jesus, remembering all the example of Christ. And as we follow hard after Jesus, we follow him by being willing to do as they do and lay down our lives for the benefit of others. That's what we have in these who left the niceties of the countryside to then live within a city that while it was the city of God, it had long since been abandoned. Now, there's much we can learn in these lists that will help us know, well, okay, what do we learn from these folks as to how to be people of courage? Well, first we learn that we must be willing to live in a place of danger. If a warring army wanted to ransack Jerusalem, living within the city would put these people directly in harm's way. That meant that they had to trust in one who was going to protect them. And they put all of their trust in their future in the Lord. But to live within the city meant if anyone wanted to come against them, they would, in essence, have a target on their back. And can I tell you that as believers in the Lord Jesus, that we are called to live our lives in the world today in the similar way, set apart from the world that we live? And it's almost as if we, too, are to live with targets on our backs. And if you're saying, well, that's maybe for the few of us, the radical of us, that's for the ordinary believer in Christ. If you know Jesus, you should live in a way that is perceivably different than anything in the world. It says of all Christians in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, this is not our home. So we don't live as if it is. For we are strangers and exiles on this earth as we seek a future homeland. You read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and Titus chapter 2, verse 14, that all the people of God who are truly saved by Christ are a people of God's possession. And when that is translated in the King James Version, it says the people of God's possession is translated in both Titus and in 1 Peter, is saying that we are a peculiar people. And I know even as I say that, you're looking at me and saying, yeah, you are. We know that. It says this is true of all of us in Christ. We are a people of God's possession. We don't live for us. We live for Him. And that puts us in a place that's way different from anyone 
in this world. That's what makes us peculiar. It's not about our desires. Everything about our life is about God's desires. You say, now there's so much that could be said about that. I'm amazed if we think about it. Just think of it this way. If you fully understand the fullness of what Christ has done, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he left his place of heaven to descend to earth, and he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself. The Bible says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a servant, becoming like us unto death. And that's how he died on a cross for us. Jesus has come to us. All we can then do is live our lives for him. How can you do anything but that? And if you do, you'll be different. You'll be set apart. And you'll find that's true in your life. You live a life of courage because you lay down your life for the benefit of others. So sometimes it means that you live in danger. It definitely means that you live giving up some forms of the world's prosperity. Think about those who are living outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. They had plenty of land to farm so they can raise whatever they needed, taking care of livestock and farm and whatever's necessary to be able to have everything that they could produce. But if you move out from the farmland and you come into the city, there is no land in a gregarian society for you to work. The land is limited. You don't have the same resources you had before. You are willingly choosing to live your life without the same kind of prosperity that you have enjoyed up until now. And that is why these folks were so affirmed by the people of God. They were blessed and called courageous because when you put these things together, to live in Jerusalem meant that you had less protection according to the Lord's standards and diminished prosperity, but you still wanted to do it because God had called you to do it. How could you do anything but follow the Lord? So those who willfully chose to live their life this way did this because they cared more about the glory of God than any of their own personal desires. And there's so much more I could say about this, but at a minimum, can I say what this at least means for us? As we're thinking about what it takes for us to be a church ministering in the world that we are today, it means at least this. God is exceedingly pleased with us when we choose to do what no one else wants to do. When we choose to do what no one else wants to do. Aren't you thankful that there are so many within our church that we need to stop and in the spirit of Nehemiah chapter 11 verse 2, bless others because of what they're doing in their humility for the sake of all of us? And I don't want you to think I'm just getting on you, but can I just tell you this and just honestly, I just want to tell you where we are. As we're coming out of a pandemic and churches all over the Southern Baptist Convention and even beyond are in the same place, this is a hard time to encourage volunteers. It's hard. We're talking about doing some things with the American Legion and, run, le, and love on our veterans. The American Legion right here in Smyrna, they have 500 members. And for the, as much of a time as any other, even they are having a hard time with volunteerism. It's just a hard thing to do coming out of the pandemic. And before we used to say um, 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Can I just tell you now, 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. And that's where we are. So we need to stop and we need to bless those who are doing such faithful work before God for us. We need to thank those who are showing up early at church and leaving late 
to unlock the doors, make sure the building is ready. Aren't you thankful for the Ed Wilkins that are doing such a thing as this? Aren't you thankful for the Mike Adams that is working hard to make sure our campus is nice and put together? Aren't you thankful for the Josh Winkles who's up there making sure that we got good words to sing on our screen? Or even the Ryan Hankins who's making sure that the sound is good? Aren't you thankful for the Charles Winkles who's given production time to make sure that we're able to live stream what we're doing? There are so many that are doing significant things for us. Chuck McMurray, keeping our building nice. There's so many folks who are doing the things that are thankless jobs, but we need to bless them because they're doing the things that sometimes no one else wants to do. But aren't you glad they're doing them? We should thank the Lord for them. So how is this affecting your heart? Are you fully vested, sometimes being willing to do things you might not even want to do because there's other things you'd rather do, but you're not doing those things because your church knows you need to do certain things now. That's what we learn from these valiant, courageous men and women of Nehemiah chapter 11. Leaving the countryside, which by the way, it might be safe to live out in the country, but you're in a place of obscurity. The reason it's safe is you're no threat to anyone out there. When you're willing to put a target on your back and say, I will serve Christ, I'll do what he calls me to do, I'll live within the place that he's called me to live and be obedient to him, you lay down your life for the good of other people. What a picture of the love that Christ has for us who is willing to do the same. So we just need to remember to lay down our lives for the benefit of others. That's one of the things we learn. Well, as we continue in chapter 11, I shared with you how you have the tribes of Judah and of Benjamin, the priests and the Levites. The Levites in the Old Testament, it's very interesting. They never got an allotted allotment of land in the book of Joshua because God was their allotment. They were called to take care of the needs of the temple. Interestingly, you find them as an allotment given to them in Revelation chapter 7. But then you see this incredible list of the Levites, and they're all mentioned here. There's still those in verse 25 and following that are living out in the villages outside of Jerusalem. And then you come to chapter 12, the mention of the priests and the Levites, and it's a historical list. It's a little different. It says in chapter 12, verse 1, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Jeshua. Now, we learned of that when we were studying the book of Haggai. Zerubbabel was the first governor that God used to bring his people out of exile. And in the days of the king of Persia, Cyrus, the first king of Persia, he gave Zerubbabel permission to come and to lead his people and reestablish the altar and the temple in Jerusalem. That's what came first. And Joshua was the high priest who went with Zerubbabel. So you had a governor and you had a high priest. And then what we have from chapter 12 and following is a historical record of what I believe several of those who served the Lord from the days that the temple was built all the way through the days of Nehemiah when they're rebuilding the walls. And you have a mention of this list. I love this mention. It shows us and reminds us that we are always a part of not just a community of those around us, but a community of the centuries of faith of those who have followed Christ. But as we continue to read... Then you come in chapter 12 to the dedication of the wall. 
That starts in verse 27, and we've learned of the, de- the wall that's already been rebuilt. It was built to protect the people so they wouldn't be the derision and be taken advantage of from everyone living around them. That wall was completed, if you remember, in a record 52 days, according to Nehemiah chapter 6. He shows up on the scene in chapter 2, and he enters through the valley gate, and what he sees is nothing but rubble. He goes by night. And from 52 days, from the time he goes and he takes an assessment of what was needed, the wall is rebuilt in chapter 6. When you come to chapter 12, it's time to dedicate this wall unto the Lord. This picture of God's faithfulness to them. And it describes what they did in this incredible ceremony of worship, beginning in verse 27. They brought all these instruments that came from the days of David and of Solomon. And it says in verse 31, read it with me, Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And this is such a great picture. One went to the south of the wall, to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshaiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, and Mishalem, and then it continues to read. So on the south side is one of two choirs, and that means the north side, as we continue to read, has another choir. And can you believe this scene? Wouldn't this be beautiful? Choir surrounding, surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And they are standing atop the walls as they are singing songs of praise before the Lord. On the south side, it's led by Ezra, the high priest. On the north side, you have included in that number, Nehemiah himself, as is mentioned here in this text. So you've got the priestly leadership You've got the lay leadership governing the people in Nehemiah. They're all coming together to sing songs of praise to God for what he has done. They're answering back and forth this and, and Tiffany of, of back and forth, calling in response, declaring the word of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of what God was doing. And the text says they're standing atop the wall. Now let's just stop there and look at that for a second. I love this detail. Because it says they're standing on top of the wall while they're singing. Do you remember what happened back in Nehemiah chapter 4 when those old wicked men that were bringing problems against Nehemiah, Sanballat and Tobiah and Gershom, remember those guys? Remember how I taught you whenever you see those names in the book of Nehemiah, what do you do? You say boo, right? And you just kept saying it, and I had to stop you last time. But remember that? Well, remember in in Nehemiah chapter 4? When Tobiah was making a mockery of Nehemiah and the people and trying to discourage him, remember what he said? He said, that wall is so weak, a little bitty fox would knock it over. But here, three tribes together are standing on the walls of stability, praising the Lord. What an answer to the opposition of God. When God is behind his people, there's nothing. No limit to what he can do. And this is what answers these opposers to the Lord. There's something else I want you to see from Nehemiah chapter 12. Did you notice what it says in verse 31? Then I brought the leaders of Judah up on the wall. So you have Judah's leaders participating. Now, if you remember back in Nehemiah chapter 3, the leaders of Judah were kind of problematic people. These were the nobility, the people of means, who were getting in the way and causing obstacles. They were not following the direction of Nehemiah. They didn't want to have anything to do with him. In fact, 
that the text says as it describes their opposition. It says these leaders would not stoop to serve the Lord. They wouldn't humble themselves to follow Nehemiah's leadership. So these are the ones who, from the very beginning, Nehemiah was leading the people. They said, not us. I don't believe in it. I'm not going to let anybody tell me what to do. So they chose to not participate in the rebuilding of the walls. And in choosing to do so, you know what they essentially did? They gave up the blessing of serving Christ. There's nothing greater than serving Jesus. Amen? Have you ever realized what God has gifted us with, the privilege to serve the King? And these would not stoop and humble themselves to serve Christ, to serve the Lord. They refused. And then you come to Nehemiah chapter 12, and they are included in the choir. Now, can I stop and tell you, if I were Nehemiah, what I'd be tempted to do? I'm not letting you anywhere near this ceremony because you don't deserve the right. And when I realize that, can I tell you what you understand in Nehemiah 12 is the infinite and amazing, never-ending grace of God because the same thing that Nehemiah allows them to do, that's what God lets me do every day that I serve him. I don't deserve the right to have access to him and to serve him. It is only but the grace of God that any of us would be able to worship him. And what you see in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 31, is a beautiful reflection and a clear reminder of the incredible grace of God in our lives. Listen, church, don't look at Nehemiah 12 and put yourself in the role. If that were me, I'd be one of the ones who was at the wall with a weapon in one hand and a tool in the other. If you want to know where we fall in this story, we're the leaders who chose not to participate earlier, but not for the grace of God. God looks over our weakness, our lack of humility, and in his grace he says, I'll let you be a part of this worship. This is a picture of the grace of God in our lives. And all we can do when we see God's grace is respond with overwhelming worship and complete surrender to Jesus. So I see it right here. You see so much. God answers his opposers. You see the leaders of Judah and the picture of the grace of God and the fact that these leaders were even included. And I want you to see in chapter 12 what they do. The Bible says that in order to participate, they cleansed themselves before the Lord. They sang after offering these sacrifices. They remembered the example of David before them, and they worshiped. And look at what it says in verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Here's the next thing to remember as we read this text. Join this choir. Share in the joy that travels. Share in the joy that travels. Be faithful to him. What an opportunity we have as we learn from this lesson how to be a part of this choir. And then you come to verse 44 and following. Chapter 12 ends by showing us after the people had worshipped, you see the swell of worship. And what does it always lead to? God, whatever you want from me, I'm yours. It's the same picture of Romans chapter 12. I want to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. There's nothing in me that I hold back. And when Nehemiah 
writes of this. Listen to how the people responded after worshiping that day. On that day were appointed over the storerooms the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather them into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the field of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. After worshiping the Lord, they rediscovered God's word. And once again, you see, they knew from the word of God they were to give it the first fruits. Their very best. It's the promise of everything that was to come. And to tithe and give of the first fruits to God. And God brought joy to their hearts as they rejoiced with the priests and the Levites as they continued to contribute to the work that was being done in the temple. So from the end we learn from Nehemiah, the example of the people that we need to render unto God what he requires. And we give of our lives the first fruits, the best of what we've got to him. We don't hold anything back. Anything that's ours is his anyway. God, you can have it all. So as I come to this place in Nehemiah, we've only got one chapter left. We're going to end it next week as I get to talk about a guy who, in obedience to the Lord, pulled the hair out of other people. I can't wait for that text. That comes next week, but before we get there, I want us just to survey what we've been reading from chapter 7 following. The second half of the book is about rebuilding the people. It starts by discovery of the Word of God, having it explained to the people, and when that happens, you rejoice. Chapter 9, confession of sin happens when we realize the distance between who we are and where a holy God is, and all we can do is cry out before Him and ask for His mercy and confess our sins. Then you come to chapter 10 of Nehemiah. As you read about in chapter 10, how God calls them to ratify, to write down their promises. And then it's not just enough to make promises before God, but you've got to keep them. If you're going to make God a promise and not keep it, better not to make it in the first place. But the calling was to make God promises and to keep those promises. And then you come to chapter 11, this book about, this chapter about valiant courage and obedience. And chapter 12 is all about worship and stewardship. This is the recipe for rebuilding the people in Nehemiah's day. And can I submit to you, this is a recipe of how God wants to rebuild his people even today. That through the finished work of Jesus, if you want to grow to become all that God wants you to be, and if we want to be a part of that together as a church, we have to stay anchored to the eternal word of God, to understand it, to explain it, to make it the central part of our worship and what we do. Without the word of God, we don't have anything. We've got to be a people that are quick to confess our sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. And when we make vows before the Lord, we keep our promises before him. And we hold each other accountable to make sure we're doing that. That we're a people who obey the Lord no matter what it costs, being courageous and valiant in the world that we live in, committed to worship and to stewardship. And as we live our lives this way, God's going to rebuild us just as he did in Nehemiah's day when he rebuilt God's people then. I love this text. And it all begins with you knowing and you trusting that you know Christ that everything the Bible says is true about him, that you've received him as Savior and Lord. 
And that's where it all begins. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. And we're about to sing. And as we get ready to, I just invite you, if you've never trusted in Jesus, to do it right now. The Bible says we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And when we turn to him and we trust him, knowing that he who knew no sin became sin for us, then we're given the righteousness of God. If you need Christ, won't you receive him as Savior and Lord today? Confess with your mouth that he's Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And as you turn to him in faith and repentance, you'll be saved. And for the rest of us, listen, when it comes to the anchoring our lives to God's word, confessing our sin, following him, making good on our promises, being obedient even when it's costly, worshiping, stewardship, what area in your life is the Lord pinpointing and saying, I want you to be faithful to me here? Just be honest before the Lord. Let the Spirit do its work. As you think about Nehemiah, let it penetrate your own heart. Father, I thank you so much for your truth. And as we sing this song, I pray that we'll align our lives in agreement with your word and with your will. In Christ's name we pray, amen.